Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich of the Eurasian and Russian Studies channel. When Russia occupied the Crimea in 2014, sparking a series of conflicts that continue to this day with Ukraine, a new term appeared, which was called hybrid warfare. But what is hybrid warfare, and are the Russians the true masters of this supposedly new form of warfare? These issues will be the subject of this episode as I interview Alfred Fr- Friedman on his book, Russian Hybrid Warfare, Resurgence and Politicization, that was published by Oxford University Press. Originally published in 2018, we will be discussing the recent 2022 edition. Offer Friedman is Director of Operations at the King's Center for Strategic Communications and a research fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. Uh, Ofer Friedman, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, thank you very much uh, for having me. And uh, we usually like to begin uh, our interviews by asking our guests, uh, what, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what motivated you to write this book? And maybe if you could, because this is an updated version of your book that we're discussing, maybe why did you update it uh, from the 2018 edition? Uh, well, uh, I woke up one day in uh, back in 2015 and suddenly realized that everyone in the field uh, was talking about hybrid warfare, uh, uh, which was probably uh, in the context, which not necessarily probably, it was definitely in the context of uh, previous year annexation of Crimea. Uh, and two interesting books navigated their ways uh, onto my table back in 2015. Uh, one of them was about uh, hybrid warfare published by NATO. Uh, and another one was about Gibrid Nevaina, which is hybrid warfare in Russian, published in Russia. Now, as an uh, expert in the in the field, uh, this is uh, kind of when I approach uh, Russian publication and Western publication on the same topic, let's say asymmetric warfare, so kind of transurgency, uh, uh, and so on. Well, they will write more or less about the same thing with slightly different views on it, and which is rooted in different uh, historical experience, cultural approaches, and so on. But if I have a book about terrorism written in Russia and terrorism written in the West, they will more or less think about terrorism. Now, what uh, uh, fascinated me about these two books was that they had the same title. They claimed to speak about the same thing. But actually, they spoke about completely different concepts. Uh, so, kind of okay, this was the puzzle to solve. Now, uh, operating by the same words that actually came up with different conceptualizations, uh, this is what motivated me to kind of go into the blue waters of conceptual discourses in the West and uh, uh, in Russia, uh, trying to understand the origins of both of the terms, both of the discourses, how they have been shaped, 
uh, and uh, what does it mean uh, to the relationship between the West uh, and Russia. Uh, and it resulted in the original publication of the book in uh, 2018, as you mentioned. Uh, but again, it was published in 2018, so it was written mainly in 15 and 16. Uh, and as we're all aware, many uh, things have happened since then. Uh, so uh, just before the uh, invasion of Ukraine in February, I said to myself, okay, um, much discourse has, has, has happened since then both in Western Russia. So uh, let's try and write an update. Uh, one of my main arguments in the book that uh, it's kind of, you know, the perception shapes the reality, with the reality shapes the perception and the language, the discourse, it's actually the, uh, the way into this circle of perception and reality. And one of the main arguments in the original book was uh, basically what we can observe in this discourse back in 15, 16, 17, and 18 is how these two sides, the West and Russia, slowly talk themselves into the war. Uh, there's, uh, uh, they both claim to uh, conduct war once against another. Uh, and my uh, main argument was well, if this is uh, the perception of the reality, we should uh, await and see how you know, the war is imminent. You know, this is how both sides perceive the reality uh, and uh, they slowly will talk uh, both, uh, themselves into it. Uh, so now we should not be surprised that actually we have a war because we've been talking about the war uh, for the last uh, eight years. Yeah, so uh, just can you, kind of briefly summarize like what do we mean by by this concept of hybrid warfare for our audience just to give them a basic idea and we'll definitely go into more detail as we uh continue on with the this the interview because i know it's a real complex uh concept well it's not necessarily complex it's complicated uh and there's a difference uh, uh first of all uh, since the publication of the book uh, back uh, what is like four four years ago I've been constantly given lectures and talks about habit warfare and a very interesting experiment that I usually conduct when I uh, arrive uh, to give a talk to a military audience or to an academic audience is to ask them to tell me what is habit war. Uh, and uh, I, usually I will get as many answers as people in the audience. Uh, so uh, it's not complex, it's complicated because everyone can put inside whatever they want to put inside. Uh, clearly, uh, if you dive deep into this multiple definitions, you can see clearly three main families of definitions in different worlds. The first time, uh, the first family of definitions of habit warfare is kind of the original conceptualization, which was born long before, um, uh, uh, before annexation of Crimea. It was popular mainly uh, um, in the United States military circles. It was uh, originated, coined, and promoted by Frank Hoffman uh, within uh, uh, US uh, theoretical discourse about uh, the uh, character of contemporary warfare. It has very little to do with what happened in Ukraine uh, in 2014. So this is the first family, which basically implies that you have a combination of uh, irregular, irregular and regular tactics, 
methods, uh, formations on the same battlefield. Uh, and to credit uh, uh, Frank, uh, uh, Frank for this, uh, there is some novelty in this concept. Uh, although partisans and regular forces have been fighting together for, I don't know, hundreds of years, there is nothing new in that, they rarely were fighting on the same battlefield. Even if we take the Second World War, the, party, the Soviet partisans were on, fighting their wars, the regular army was fighting their wars. And all the historical cases will go back to uh, American Revolution, uh, Napoleonic Wars, Partisans and regular forces were fighting for uh, uh, for the same actor, but on different battlefields. And what we uh, uh, what we could see uh, more clearly in in uh, the beginning of the 21st century, uh, and especially his case study was the Second Lebanon War, where his bala actually came and brought together on the same battlefield both times to, uh, both types of warfare, regular and irregular, together presenting one unified combined threat to a regular army, in that case was the idea. So this is one family. And it's important to say that this is a very military approach to battlefield. It's about how battlefield looks like and what I am as a military commander, what kind of enemy I will find there. The second family uh, refers to what grew up out of this after the annexation of Crimea, mainly within NATO. Uh, and it applies uh, everything from conventional military force to completely non-military means, uh, brought together whatever opponent does, and we don't like. This is habit warfare. Uh, if the opponent invades us with uh, uh, special forces, it's habit warfare. But also, if opponent distributes disinformation. Uh, or use uh, economic uh, uh, coercion, it's hybrid warfare. So it's all sources of power uh, combined together against an opponent. And then there is a Russian conceptualization of Gibridna Vaina, which, uh, by the way, was also adopted by later on uh, by certain uh, uh, organizations and institutions in the West, like the European. Uh, uh, center of Excellence for uh, countering hybrid threats. Uh, then uh, they developed it by themselves. They didn't adopt Russian, but it's in the same family uh, that all different activities conducted by opponents short of war, short of conventional force. So if you put it on, on the spectrum between military and non-military means, on the military means side, you will have the original uh, Hoffman conceptualization. On the non-military side, you will have Russian hybrid Nevaina, and NATO understanding of hybrid warfare will include them all. Everything that opponent does and we don't like becomes a hybrid warfare. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Frank Hoffman and uh, his original conception of the concept due to the Second Lebanon War, but he, uh, where did he get this concept from? You mentioned that there were some uh, sources that he used that synthesized them all, like uh, you call uh, unrestricted warfare, fourth generation warfare, and compound warfare. Uh, can you explain these uh, concepts and how uh, Hoffman was able to use these to 
conceive of hybrid warfare? Uh, well, during the the nineties, uh, after the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union and the general disappearance of the conventional threat to the West, uh, different uh, people, different organizations, have been trying to conceptualize the the uh, the new character of warfare. Uh, and then uh, we have unrestricted warfare, which actually originates in China. Uh, and this is how Chinese uh, in the late 90s looked back uh, to, especially to the first Gulf War, uh, trying to conceptualize the contemporary, uh, uh, contemporary character of war, which was then translated and picked up very short-lived in the early 2000s within the American discourse. Uh, I think the title itself, uh, Unrestricted Warfare, doesn't, doesn't do a good job for the concept because uh, the original, if you trans translate it directly, it means uh, warfare that goes beyond the boundaries, and, and not which is not necessarily unrestricted. And the main concept was there that in the contemporary environment, uh, warfare will be all about mixing and matching on different levels, different capabilities, different methods on intrastate, superstate, between different branches. It's all about combination and creating a more suitable cocktail, mixing the more suitable cocktail. This is uh, the metaphor that they use. Uh, rather than conceptual boxes of the Western thinking, this is regular, this is irregular, this is insurgency, this is terrorism, this is limited, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, this was an uh, idea to come and say, well, actually, let's go beyond the boundaries of our conceptual intellectual boxes. Uh, so this was the first concept that kind of inspired uh, Frank Hoffman. The second concept was fourth generation warfare, which uh, probably our American listeners are more, most familiar with. It was developed in the late uh, uh, 80s, just uh, close to the end of the uh, Cold War, and actually took a much more influential platform uh, position in 90s, 2000. Until today, there's much talk about fourth-generation warfare. Uh, and it's the whole history of kind of trying to understand different ways, and there's a first wave of about uh manpower and then the firepower and then this uh, and the whole idea of the fourth generation warfare uh, is that uh, the battlefield has changed and actually uh, today the influence of the battlefield is not on the battlefield itself it's on the uh, heart and mind of the decision makers and now when you plan your fight and you plan your war and operation uh, it's important to understand that the strategic effects on decision makers, not necessarily winning on the battlefield. And then compound warfare, uh, uh, which probably less familiar, uh, least familiar among these three, uh, actually was developed also in, in the United States by several uh, American historians who came and said, well, when we look back in history, there are certain relations between irregular and irregular forces. So occasionally the actor that employs them both uh, can uh, not use them separately, but they can uh, use them together where the uh, 
uh, sum is greater than the simple sum of both uh, and they compound one to another. Uh, so yeah, these are the three that Hoffman discussed by, themself, uh, by himself, trying to say, okay, this is the inspiration. We have this discourse for a decade where it's all about something combination, uh, something, a, an idea that tries to bring together and blend our traditional isolated understandings of warfare. Uh, and this is where he looks at, uh, uh, at the Second Lebanon War, specifically on Hezbollah. Uh, later on, he analyzes uh, some other cases uh, where uh, this uh, combination, this hybrid of uh, traditionally uh, regular and traditionally irregular forces and capabilities are combined together to present uh, one unified uh, uh, threat to a conventional military. Yeah, now how did this concept kind of develop uh, over the decades since Hoffman originally uh, uh, originated this concept? Because he did it in around 2008, if I'm uh, correct. Yes. And uh, so in that decade since he first originated it, how did it kind of develop? So he, uh, uh, he uh, produced several interesting publications among interesting, uh, uh, most influential American military publications. Uh, it started to uh, slowly penetrate into the discourse. It has never been adopted by American military as a concept or something. Uh, it slowly started to penetrate, uh, obviously, like with any concept, there are advocates and there are opponents, and the discourse has been developing there for years. In, interestingly enough, in 2012, NATO tried to pick up, in 2010, NATO tried to pick up this concept and see what they can do. The problem was that the concept was very tactical operational. Right. It was military concept for military commanders, how to understand the reality of the battlefield. NATO, on the other hand, it's a strategy, gun strategy organization. Uh, they leave the tactical operations to the member states and the member state militaries. So they try to kind of elevate this idea of hybridity of combination uh, to the level of strategy, trying to say, okay, we like the hybrid, we like the combination, so let's bring all sources of power together and see how that uh, will produce a threat. Also, we have to remember it's 2010, uh, so Russia is not uh, in the news yet. Uh, what we have in the news is uh, international terrorism. Uh, so they tried it for a few years, but then in 2012, they said, well, there's not much interest among the member states to invest in kind of further developing and uh, of that kind of capabilities. And they officially uh, closed the shelter on all discussions. They wished luck to member states to continue developing these ideas by themselves. Uh, and uh, uh, they, they, they stopped conceptual development on this. And it uh, continued in the United States for, for, for quite a while, uh, until obviously 2014 happened, which was a strategic surprise uh, for NATO and the West. They didn't know how to think about it. And this is where 
this concept was resurrected, uh, quite artificially, by the way, and unintentionally, because whatever Russians did there did not fit that concept. So they had to reconceptualize it uh, 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 from scratch. Um, interestingly enough, I discussed it in the book, but uh, uh, it was popularized by a journalist uh, in a very influential publication in NATO magazine without being aware that the, 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 this term has been popularized by him without being aware of the whole Hoffman conceptualization before. Uh, and then it was just picked up. Uh, so it was not done intentionally. Uh, it just, uh, uh, just happened. Now we move from uh, NATO Western military to Russian military thinking, and you speak a little, uh, quite a bit about uh, Yevgeny Mesner and what is his significance to the history of Russian military theory, especially as it relates to this concept of hybrid warfare or Gibrinaya Vaina, as we'll discuss in a few minutes. Yeah. So now he uh, completely independently from whatever is go was going on in the West. Uh, in Russia has been and Russian military thinking and military science is famous for its discourses and attempts to understand uh, uh, the nature and character of warfare and occasionally even trying to conceptualize uh, uh, certain activities and uh, capabilities which they have no chance of having. Uh, so Completely independently, since the beginning of the 90s, there was a discourse in Russia, in Russian military circles uh, and academic uh, circles of uh, about the nature of contemporary uh, war. Now, it's important to remember that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, this uh, Marxist-Leninism also collapsed. And for Russian military circles, Marxist-Leninism was the philosophy that explained war. Any war eventually was explained as a continuation of the class struggle. Uh, it, the philosophy of Marxist-Leninism uh, was deeply integrated with the philosophy of war. With the collapse of that, they kind of in the 90s, they found themselves, okay, so what is war? Uh, we need to reestablish our philosophy of war and how we should understand this phenomenon. So they went on a long uh, way of exploration into uh, different schools, not necessarily Western ones, uh, which is something I discussed in my other book. But uh, uh, eventually they rediscovered many Russian thinkers from imperial time, but also Russian thinkers in exile. And Messner, Evgeny Messner, well, uh, obviously was uh, uh, was one of them. Uh, back during the Cold War, he was trying to conceptualize different subversion activities conducted by the Soviet Union against the West. Now, in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, his idea of uh, subversion war, Mitesh Vaina, which is in Russian, uh, became quite popular in Russian because it was uh, providing an explanation for the loss of the Soviet Union. Soviet Union did not uh, lose war on the battlefield. Uh, we can argue uh, about the true reasons, about the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, we can say it was economic mismanagement. We can say it was uh, uh, people became... Uh, 
less uh, delusional with the party. We can we can provide many arguments. But uh, from the perspective of the Russian military, the Soviet Union lost because of the Western subversion. Now, whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. This is what they believed in. Uh, and theory of Messner provided a good explanation uh, of how it happened. So uh, in uh, 90s, 2000s, his conceptual framework of subversion war has been used to kind of understand how uh, subversion is used below the threshold of actual war. Now, another figure you mentioned is Alexander Dugin, who has been uh, in the news quite a lot over the past few years, and even just within very recently due to the assassination attempt uh, on August 2022, which killed his daughter eventually. But uh, what is his significance to this discourse on uh, post-Soviet military theory? Uh, well, uh, Alexander Zogin, indeed, he became to be prominent, mainly among the West and experts and the discussions in Russia. Uh, he is not very popular in Russia, uh, but he had, plays a very important role in the discourse. So uh, he's even too extreme thinker for the Kremlin. But he serves a very important role uh, because he, he's positioned so much on the right extreme of the discourse. And he's allowed to be there by the Kremlin because we're all aware figures who are not allowed by the Kremlin to be where they are, they are not going to be there where they are. You know, the balconies are too slippery in Moscow or St. Petersburg. Uh, but he's allowed to be there, but his job is crucial because what he does, he justifies the whole discourse in the middle. Because uh, many uh, extreme thinkers or right thinkers can come and always say, and say, well, what do you want from me? I'm not doing it, right? So basically legitimizing this whole discourse uh, uh, between Dugin and uh, uh, the center. So this is the role of, of Dugin. Now, Dugin does not necessarily speak about military thinking. He speaks about geopolitical confrontations, right? Which are conducted uh, usually not by military means, uh, uh, but non-military means. Uh, and his idea of nationalistic war, which he developed uh, in the mid-2000s, basically spoke more or less in the same language as Messner, but about how subversion is conducted against Russia by the West, what Russia should do uh, to uh, defend against its subversion, and how to conduct subversion against Again, uh, it's not necessarily has to be true. This is what they believe in. This is their perception of the reality. Uh, the same applies uh, on uh, uh, on Igor Panarin, which is uh, the third uh, uh, the third theorist that I use in uh, uh, in my book. He's a former KGB officer, uh, and uh, he started to write about uh, this term, which is called information war, uh, since the early nineties. Uh, and uh, uh, again, he expressed exact same ideas. Uh, so what happened back in 2014, 
when Russians suddenly found themselves being accused of conducting hybrid war by the West, right? The West, uh, uh, the West accused Russia of doing hybrid war in Ukraine. Uh, hybrid war, Gibrina right now was not a part of Russian lexicon before. So what they said, okay, we need to go and investigate what we're actually accused of. But instead of going to Hoffman or going even to the NATO discussion, they russified the concept. They basically took main theories or most dominating concepts in this discourse about non-military confrontation or non-military means in, in geopolitical confrontations which was Messner's and uh, Dugin and uh, uh, and Panarin and many others who I also mentioned in the book, in the book uh, and tried to distill it into uh, one unified concept. This is where they came up with which essentially implies uh, a combination of non-military means, economic, political, diplomatic, informational, and so on and so on. And also military, but not for military purposes. So it's about projection of power and the new equipment and other things that can be uh, uh, can be used to influence uh, uh, opponents. Uh, and this is how Gibrid Davina entered uh, uh, entered uh, Russian lexicon. But again, it entered mainly as something that the West does against Russia. Right? Non, no Russian scholar will accept that. Russia does Gibrid Navajna against the West. Similarly, like in the NATO discussion or Western discussion, hybrid warfare is something Russia does, or China or any other opponent. Well, none, uh, uh, no Western scholar or expert or professional will actually accept uh, the idea that actually the West might also do hybrid warfare against its opponents. Yeah, an underlining theme that I uh, got from the book was from reading all these different theories of hybrid war or Gibranaya Vaina was this still there's this underlining idea of Russia versus the West as if the Cold War never ended. Is that kind of a correct assessment in your view? Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, the Cold War ended for a very short period of time. And then it was either uh, uh, resurrected uh, uh, or it just resurged by itself. It's a completely different story. Uh, but uh, as, I, uh, as I said in the beginning of our, uh, our conversation, uh, somewhere in the early 2000s, we can see how discourse on both sides have been shaping in a military confrontational terms. And assuming that you know perception shapes reality that shapes perception, we should not be surprised that once this wheel was initiated, was a circle was initiated on both sides, it uh, slowly uh, 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 slowly progressed uh, into what we have today. Now, another figure who is often brought up in regards to Gibranaya by now, at least in the West, is the figure of Ge uh, General Valery Gerezimov, and especially with the so-called Gerezimov doctrine uh, that was coined by Mark uh, Geliati, I believe. And uh, what role does this play in the discourse, at least in the West, on Russian hybrid warfare? Well, 
irrational doctrine is a nonsense. Uh, and uh, um, even uh, uh, Mark Galeotti, who invented the term later on, officially apologized for, 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 that, in, uh, for that invention uh, uh, in writing. So kind of, it, it's important to remember. Uh, for a while, especially since 2014, 15, for several years, uh, I think it was quite popular among the Western military circles. In my opinion, it was complete misunderstanding of Russia, Russian military, Russian military thinking. There were many people who came against it within the discourse, tried to stop it, but it was catched fire for a while. I think misleading the West from the right uh, direction. Uh, and interesting to see how, so Gibritna Vaina, the Russian concept of hybrid warfare, similarly like in the, in the United States has never been adopted officially. Right? It has never been a part of a Russian military dictionary or something or doctrinal publications. But it has been used by Russian military uh, because, first of all, uh, even Gerasimov doctrine, as we will, as it was, it was not written by Gerasimov. The, the articles, the main principles of these articles were written by Sergei Chikinov and Sergei Bogdanov, which you can trace the, in, his, in their publications, uh, the all main uh, themes of, this, uh, of all uh, Gerasimov's articles later. But what happened uh, in this kind of political military relations between within Russia, because of these discourses of the rising roles of non-military means uh, within Russian political expert uh, community, academic community, at certain point, uh, especially in the early 2010s, the military started to feel threatened by this discourse. Theoretically, if the government now believes that the conflict can be won only by non-military means, we don't need military. Uh, so the military adopted this idea of non-military uh, confrontations, uh, including Gibridna Vaina, to separate and provide a clear conceptual line saying, okay, it's all fine, but true wars are won by tanks and planes. And if you want us to win true wars, give us money for tanks and planes. This was the main line of Gerasimov's speech. He was referring to non-military means, to informational struggle and all this kind of stuff. But if you uh, draw the line in his uh, speeches and kind of focus between the lines and what he actually was trying to communicate, uh, among all different speeches and articles that he published, he was constantly saying, yes, this idea of Gibridna Vaina is a nice idea. It has nothing to do with war. It's a geopolitical confrontations, which are, which are fine. Uh, but if you want to win a war, or uh, uh, if you want us as a military institution in Russia to provide uh, security uh, and be an important tool, uh, uh, of decision-making, you need to give us money. We need new tanks, new rockets, and new planes. Uh, and then it will be war, uh, and we need to prepare for that. Uh, so uh, coming back to, uh, uh, to that, uh, 
we need to separate and un- truly understand the role of the Britna Vaina within the discourse uh, in Russia. It was quickly adopted by the political institution, especially uh, politicians on the right side of the political map, who could come and say, look, the West is trying to subvert us. And it was adopted to a certain extent by the military and popularized by the military to say, well, it's all fine and nice, but it's not a war. Although we call it Kiprit Nevaina, we call it hybrid war, it's not a true war. It's a geopolitical confrontation. It's fine. The government should measure, uh, uh, manage it. When it comes to wars, wars are when uh, shells are falling from the skies and uh, uh, you, need, you need to give us money for that. Yeah, almost new twist on the term Cold War, which was used for that confrontation between the Soviet Union and uh, NATO. Now, when Russia occupied Crimea in 2014, and then, of course, there was also the the war in uh, the Donbass, this had some wider impact of where hybrid warfare got catapulted into the popular discourse in the West. And it, and you talk about like some of the wider impact this had on politics in many different Western countries where almost Russia becomes this ubiquitous boogeyman. Uh, can you explain how this happened? Well, yeah. So first of all, on the mechanics of popularization of hybrid warfare. So the accession happened in, the, in, in, uh, uh, in May 2014. And whatever Russians did in Crimea didn't fit any conceptual box of the Western military thinking. Uh, And so they tried to come up and explain uh, and so on. Now, in uh, summer uh, 14, in late June, uh, NATO magazine, uh, which is a civilian managed publication of NATO, produced a very short documentary uh, based on a conference uh, organized by NATO about annexation of Crimea. And the title of this uh, short video was uh, Hybrid uh, hybrid uh, War, Hybrid Response. Uh, and then during the uh, second part of the summer, several uh, uh, big conferences were organized among, uh, by different NATO member states, mainly East European, uh, Romanians, Bulgarians, uh, uh, and so on, uh, who actually published articles and uh, created this discourse where they referred to this uh, documentary uh, saying, well, you see, this NATO already recognizes that what Russians did is hybrid warfare. Now, when I interviewed the director of uh, this video and ask him, okay, so why did you call it hybrid warfare? You know, there was a whole concept about it. Were you aware of this? That I had no idea that this concept there. When Russians didn't create, they combined different things, and uh, hybrid seems more evil than combination. <laughs> and then this is a, they, they basically, that all started this snowball. Uh, and it was very, useful for the same political reasons, with, especially within NATO and among European member uh, 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 militaries, and in, in the negotiation uh, uh, for budget uh, and for influence within, uh, with their own government. Uh, you know, Russia did many things that uh, Western European countries didn't like. Uh, well, 
to start with, it occupied uh, Crimea and uh, supported separatists in uh, Ukraine. But then there was all this uh, disinformation and subversion uh, and uh, economic uh, uh, use of economic tools to coerce countries to do different things. Uh, and then we get uh, to the uh, Brexit and the uh, elections um, uh, of Trump in 2016. So Russia did many things. Uh, now, when you come uh, to decision making, say, well, Russia does that, and Russia does that, and Russia does that, and that requires that response, and that because it's too complicated to make decisions, and especially to ask for funding. Now, when you put everything into one basket, hybrid war, Russian hybrid warfare. And instead of specifying, okay, there are like you know there are trees there, and then there are bushes, and then there is grass, there is a forest. Like okay, uh, it becomes much easier into internal political discourse. And this is why hybrid warfare became so popular. The problem with that that it misinterprets the reality. And the second problem with that is that as military institutions, NATO and also uh, militaries of member states have little to do with hybrid warfare, right? Uh, we don't expect our military to regulate our information space, to stop Russia from conducting uh, or distributing disinformation. We don't expect our military to make economic decisions and uh, uh, cut off Russian supply of gas or our dependency on Russian gas. Uh, so it's because it puts in the basket, which is called warfare, we ultimately think, okay, this is a security issue, the military and security services should deal with it. But actually the vast majority of activities included in this basket of non-military nature and military, especially in democratic countries, have very little toolbox to address them. Now, you also talk about how Gibranaya Vaina had uh, deep impacts in Russian politics, and we've discussed elements of that. Can you expand on that point of what impact that's had on Russian politics? Well, again, in Russian politics, it has been also politicized, but for slightly different reasons. So it was politicized by the uh, uh, politicians and organizations on the right side of the map, political map uh, to kind of to accuse the West of uh, subversion of Russia or attempts of subversion of Russia, uh, or even kind of try to connect it to the kind of historical developments and go all back to the conquest of Vienna when uh, after Napoleonic Wars. You know, when uh, uh, British and Austrians conspired against uh, Russia and all these kind of stories. Uh, so it was used by them to close their ranks among themselves, but also with the establishment in certain, uh, 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 certain parts of the Russian population. Uh, we have to remember, Russians are very proud nation. And uh, they also had to justify to themselves, the, or explain at least, the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, and it's much easier to blame the other rather than to look at yourself. Right? It's much easier to say, okay, these are the West who subverted us, and this subversion has never ended, and so on and so on. And so on. so it, it been, it's been used there, but the military was uh, politicized for different reasons, right? Well, 
the Western military institutions, especially NATO, been saying, there is a Russian hybrid warfare, there is a hybrid warfare, we can help you, give us money, we need to address it, this threat. This was politi uh, the politicization of hybrid warfare in the West. In Russia, it was slightly different for the same purpose, although, but slightly different discourse. It was, well, Gibridna Vaina is nice. We are not responsible for that. The Secret Service is the government responsible for that. But let's not get confused. This is not a war. The true war is conducted by planes and uh, ships and rockets and tanks. And for true war, give us money and give us resources because we need to be prepared to fight a true war. Uh, so both of the, uh, on both sides uh, of the new iron curtain, if you like, uh, hybrid vaina uh, or hybrid warfare have been very useful politically speaking uh, for the military establishments and for certain political establishments as well, uh, uh, institutions uh, uh, and so on. Uh, the problem is that it's conceptually wrong. It does not present the reality as it is, and it doesn't. It doesn't. The main problem: it doesn't help to understand the opponent standing in front of you. Yeah, I was about to ask you. Like, uh, do you think this concept is uh, helpful or hindering? But I think you just answered that. Now, you originally post uh, uh, published this book in 2018, and you just came out with a new revised edition. How has the discourse on hybrid warfare? Uh, evolved since you first published this book and maybe if you have any thoughts on whether or not it's still continuing with the ongoing war in ukraine well first of all it, uh, it has been institutionalized and i address it in the new introduction and the new forward so we have now centers who study hybrid warfare or hybrid threats all across europe uh, it become to be part of the institution. Uh, in my opinion, it's a mistake. Uh, it's a conceptual mistake. Russia does many bad things or subversive things. <laughs> There's no denial of that. But to see this is through that prism, it's, uh, 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 it's misfortunate. Uh, simultaneously, in the United States, and this is what another important addition to uh, uh, the new uh, edition of the book. Uh, meanwhile, in the last decade, in the United States, another concept uh, grew up in uh, prominence, which is gray zone. Uh, and they mainly speak about the same thing, uh, which is, in my opinion, another bankrupt conceptualization. Uh, simply, what we are talking here about hostile international relations. This is what we're talking about. And there is little new in that throughout history, countries, didn't like each other. Uh, and occasionally they didn't like each other, but they couldn't fight each other on the battle for a whole set of different reasons. Uh, and they tried to do nasty things to each other without actually fighting. Let's not forget that France supported uh, American Revolution for four years having peace with Britain because they couldn't fight Britain back then. And only by the end of the uh, revolution, they actually declared war on Britain. But they provided supplies, they supported the training uh, soldiers, and so on and so on. Uh, so it's a part of international relations. It has always been part of international relations. And countries that don't like each other but could not fight each other for uh, either they have no capability, desire, or they both have nuclear weapons and they just, uh, you know, uh, deter from doing it. 
will do nasty things to each other. It's called foster international relations. There is no, no warfare there. There is no war there. Unless there is a war, and then it's, uh, uh, it's a completely different story. Now, to call hostile international relations as a war or warfare, it's a very slippery slope. And as I demonstrate in the new edition, it's kind of of the book. Well, for uh, eight years, since 2014 until February 2022, we've been calling hostile international relations as a war. So we should not be surprised that we found ourselves in a war after all. Uh, so I refer to that, and uh, I develop uh, some other, in the final chapter, I develop some other ideas about this uh, fashionable idea of blending war and peace, Russian activities or gray zone or hybrid warfare, they're blending, the, blurring the line between war and peace, uh, which is another conceptual oxymoron. There has never been a line between war and peace. Where is the line? If somebody can put, say, where is the line between war and peace? Right, uh, uh, then we can blur it. But different uh, countries, uh, different cultures, put this line differently, uh, and in different societies, and even in the same societies, but in different time periods, whatever constituted war changed, and the line has been shifted accordingly. So when you have a clash between two states or two cultures who have this line in different places, you can't blur it because they can't establish where it is. Uh, yeah. Now, do you have any view on how NATO should be uh, dealing with Russia, especially in light of the ongoing war with uh, Ukraine? Well, I think uh, NATO should not deal with Russia. I will always sound controversial, I will explain. The NATO and generally collective West let's say, in uh, interest and values rather than geographical, right? Need to decide what they want for themselves. And if so, their response to Russia should not be driven by Russia. Their response to Russia should be driven by the vision of the world in which they want to live or the world they want to, uh, to construct and build. Now, if that vision requires certain actions against or with Russia, then it should be conducted. Uh, this is called grand strategy, right? So uh, it's not about what we need to do with Russia. Whatever we need to do with Russia is practical. And it needs to fit into a greater vision of the world that we want to live in. And I think the West currently is lost. On that, we're trying to tactically react to Russia, to China, to, to Iran, we'll say Americans are trying to react. Uh, we are in a, this tactical loop of reactions, which are not connected necessarily to uh, in what world we want to live. Uh, we, are not, we should not be surprised that now, and now we can see it clearly the global south is not with us, not with us, uh, or at least on Ukrainian issue. It's not necessarily that they support Russia. They're for themselves, uh, 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 and maintain certain connections with Russia for their own benefit. We need to decide what kind of world we want to live in. Are we now on defend, on defense, or are we trying to bring communities around? Maybe the way to deal with Russia is not necessarily 
sending more weapons and troops and training to Ukraine, which is important, but maybe it's actually creating a global consensus against Russia, which is different to completely different activities to deal with Russia. So uh, uh, it, it, it's a little bit high, but I think if you already asked this question, uh, the question here is not how NATO should deal with Russia. The question is here, well, if the question is focused on NATO, how NATO member states want to build their future and their place in the world, what kind of world they want to build. And then within the context of that vision, to find the most suitable way to deal with Russia that can be not necessarily directly supporting Ukraine, uh, or maybe it is, or maybe it is a sort of combined actions uh, trying to win the heart and mind of uh, the rest of the world, which is the majority of the world is not with us on that. If we take it in kind of in uh, uh, economic terms, India, China, pa uh, Pakistan, Indonesia, they're not with uh, whole Africa. They are not with us. So it, the main the main economy is not with us. Population speaking, well, it's enough China and India. The majority of this uh, globe, of this world, population speaking, does not support the West in this war. Does not support Ukraine. Sorry, the West is not fighting the war. Does not support Ukraine and the Western position in this war. So maybe the way to deal with Russia is to address that. This has uh, been a very fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, do you have any uh, concluding thoughts or touch on any topics we didn't uh, discuss already? Uh, well, uh, I think we are past the point where the usefulness of hybrid warfare, because it has never been useful conceptually, it was useful politically. We passed the point. We have an actual war ongoing on in Ukraine. Uh, so I think we passed that. We, now we need to go back to the original uh, terms and conceptualizations, which actually reflect reality as it is. Uh, and most importantly, and I listened to your, I think it was previous uh, uh, podcast with Andrew Mogadan on your strategy. And I completely ag agree with him. We need to start, stop underestimating Russia. Uh, and I think you asked him a question about the Russian economy, uh, about his book, where, where, and he provided an excellent answer. I, the only thing that I can add to this, we tend in the West compare Russian economy to the economy of Spain or Portugal or Italy, which is fine. On numerical size, it is what it is. But I don't remember Spain or Italy uh, having uh, the biggest nuclear arsenal the largest territory in the world, uh, one of the most developed uh, space uh, uh, programs, uh, one of the most developed nuclear uh, energy programs, and so on and so on. Which is an interesting now conversation. It's either, it's either there is something in Russian corrupted economic system that they can do more with less, right? Which probably is not the case. Or there is something very wrong in the way we look at the world. 
so on the concluding note, I will say we need to uh, go beyond this habit warfare. We need to see the things for that they are. And most importantly, instead of being driven by the discourses of the others, we must start being driven by our own discourses and by our own vision of the world that we want to live in. Yes, I definitely would encourage our listeners to also listen to my uh, interview with Andrew Monaghan uh, on Russian grand strategy. It really overlaps quite a bit with our discussion. Now, uh, usually we like to end our uh, our interviews by asking our guests, uh, what are they working on now? And you just uh, came out with another book, Strategia. Is that correct? Uh Yep, uh, Strategia was uh, published last year. Uh, uh, it's uh, a completely new book, which is not my book, practically. Uh, uh, during my engagement uh, with many people from academia, but also many from the military, I found myself trying to explain how Russians think. Uh, this is kind of my uh, bread and butter. Uh, and I got tired of, from this understanding, so I decided a few years ago, okay, fine, you don't believe me, I'm going now and I'm going to translate Russian strategists for you to read in English. So Strategia is actually, I wrote a very nice introduction to it, but the rest are just translations, my translations, for several prominent Russian uh, strategists, either from imperial times or, or from, uh, 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 from exile, became very prominent after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, so it's mainly uh, an attempt to put something on the table of a uh, Western thinker who doesn't read Russian to get an access to the original text and put them into the heads of uh, uh, Russian thinkers. Uh, so, th but this is uh, uh, this is all uh, uh, all done already. Uh, what I'm working on now, now, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, the Kremlin did, uh, keeping us all busy with policy-relevant analysis and trying to interpret what is going on and how it might go uh, 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 in the future. Uh, so it takes um, uh, much of my time, but there is another project that I'm working on, which is related to strategic thinking. Uh, in general, but uh, Russian will be a part of it, Western will be a part of it. Uh, it's uh, trying to explain that or investigate how different worldviews uh, manifest themselves in the way uh, cultures, institutions, societies think about strategy. That sounds very fascinating. Maybe when you uh, complete that project, uh, we can have you back on the podcast. Uh, I will be most happy to do that. Uh, all for uh, uh, Friedman, uh, Friedman, I'm sorry, Friedman, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich of the Russia and Eurasian Studies channel. Until next time. <laughs>